Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Down to Earth, My Dudes, where we seek to address common misconceptions about the rather unwieldy term, world music. I'm your host, Diana, and today we're lighting it up like dynamite. Let's get started. Tonic Topic In this month's episode, we're examining the topics of religion, spirituality, and ecstasy. There's an important differentiation here. Religion refers to the system of tradition surrounding faith and worship, whereas spirituality refers to the simple act of believing in and interacting with the perceived higher power. Generally, religion involves the experience of a group or community, while spirituality has a more individual and personal connotation. Both center around achieving ecstasy, an overwhelming feeling of profound emotion, sometimes described as a trance-like experience or a transcendence of the self. Religious or spiritual ecstasy is strongly correlated with both the music of a tradition and the dance, ritual, storytelling, and interpersonal connection that surrounds engagement with the music. Both sonic and parasonic components form the identity of the music and of the tradition from which it springs. The Korean Peninsula finds itself with a syncretic religious identity as a result of colonization by foreign powers throughout recent history. Shamanism, the only indigenous religion to the region, manages imbalance between the physical and spiritual world by traversing the boundaries of cognitive space and time. Its focus on transformation and emotional catharsis has kept it relevant to Korea's changing national identity as a place of escape from social rules and boundaries. But the canonization of Sashamanist-born traditional music genres has removed many of the parasonic elements from this experience. On the other hand, the majority of popular Korean idol music has evolved into a formidable vehicle of sensory immersion. Often referred to as K-pop, this genre cluster originated from Western influence and draws on a variety of popular music conventions from across the globe. Dance, lighting, audience interaction, visual engagement, and community building are central to K-pop's allure and juxtaposing the parasonic growth of this naturalized genre with the parasonic loss of indigenous shamanist music reveals an irony that is absolutely worth the deep dive. Today we're going to be comparing a traditional Korean piece to a K-pop piece. And so our um, pensori, the piece is called uh, Crying Soft Shell Turtle uh, from Sagunga. Really interesting to listen to. It's it's kind of like the Korean equivalent of of opera, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's only accompanied by a drum that if you watch the video it they hit the drum with a stick that looks like a clave and it's really cool because like you don't expect that from just like a stick and i found it interesting like when exactly they play because like a typical drum or at least from the western perspective you'd expect a drum to be playing consistently throughout the piece but it plays more on the final and first beats of phrases rather than or, or in between phrases with like the added little shouts and vocalization and it's not something you really find in American music so it was it was interesting yeah and what the singer tends to do is sort of like a recessive thing on hanging around the same note but the whole thing with Korean music is you have these living tones 
which means like you don't necessarily stay on one pitch. The pitch can move, it can go up, it can go down. Another thing with that is like rough beauty. It's supposed to be like, it's not supposed to sound necessarily nice. It's supposed mm-hmm. to, it's, it's like realism. Right. It's like... Really focusing on the story rather than, you know, uh-huh. you know, focusing on the notes and be like, oh, I hit that chord, booyah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, and like if you watch the video, everything about her is a story. She has all these facial expressions and vocal inflections, mm-hmm. and the fan is the prop. It's so cool. Yeah, and she really embodies the, the characters with her with the timbre and her tone and really her her kind of sharp dynamics. Not much contrast, but more just like like speaking the words and inflecting in pitch to like emphasize the key words. You could sort of make the argument that she's kind of like losing herself in the music. She's becoming the story. Mm. Literally ecstasy. It's definitely like the Korean opera. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, because it's, you know, to do opera, you have to really embody the character and look through the backstory, and I feel like she's done an excellent job. Yeah, this. but you don't want to do it too much. You don't want to, like, chichuli of Artoli it. <laughs> Our K-pop song that, we're li- that we listen to is titled Drunk Dazed by the artist and hyphen. <laughs> Like drunk or dazed or something. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it, actually, yeah, because the verses were kind of softer and uh, repetitive, and I guess uh, this is kind of a weird symbolism, but I guess that's when you are drinking and then you realize, it's like, oh, like, bam, like, probably, <laughs> I don't know, like, that's probably maybe what they're going for with like the softer verses of like, oh, like, this is leading up to the like crazy part where the chorus just explodes, and that's really the ecstasy side of this song. Mm-hmm. And there's literally a lyric in there about like losing control to the music. Can't control my body, dance, dance, dance. Roughly, it's translated. But It did a lot of this thing that we hear a lot in Western music where the verses will be in major, the chorus in minor. Often mm-hmm. it's actually vice versa for Western music, but... Hmm. Yep. And you can definitely see the Western influence with the electric, electric accompaniment and the general electric sound of the vo- voices um, and the prominent bass line. What, what instrument was that? Was that? I thought that was like some bass, like guitar. But... Yeah, yeah, a bass guitar or like um, a synth bass maybe. Yeah, that's probably it. But yeah, it's you can... like when you're at a concert and you're at the front row, right in front Just of the like, speakers. Yeah, that. In today's maestro class, we're here with Sarah and Kirsten, two phenomenal young ethnomusicologists who live and study in Korea. What are your backgrounds in Korean art and music? And I know you're both living in Korea right now. Sarah, I hear you're a Miami University graduate, and now you work as an editor for a publishing company. Yeah, I've been working at this company now I started last November and it's a small publishing company that has a translation office. Most of the stuff that we do is smaller text for museums and cultural agencies 
some government agencies. Our main clients are museums, so I read a lot about art, doing audio guides and pamphlets and wall texts and academic papers about Korean art. Kirsten, I hear that you're researching Korean music. First off, I'm a music grad. Most of what I spent studying at Princeton was Korean language and culture and Korean music. First beginning with Gugak and then going into K-pop and now Korea's relationship to uh, Black Americans and Black American Oh, that's actually really interesting. What's the most popular music in Korea? Looking at popular based on like what's played in public spaces and what's really popular on social media. A lot of like newer K-pop songs are very popular, sort of similar to the US Top 40. Korea also listens to a lot of American pop songs as well. Things run on trends really well here, which is why those things that are really popular on TikTok really catch on here as well. I hear a lot of K-pop, both old and new stuff, but it also depends on the area that you're in. College student heavy areas, I hear K-pop. <laughs> but at the same time, it depends on the area and it depends on the space. In cafes, I've never heard like Gugak. I've heard K-pop and I've heard Western classical music. If you hear like more traditional or older styles of Korean music, those would probably be in areas older business owners. Mm, and, like, or the villages. Yeah, or like rural villages in Korea, you'll probably hear more like Hot music and more traditional music. Ooh, well. You will hear it in cabs though. If you, oh yeah, I love sitting in a cab. You're listening to like Pansori, like like zooming through Seoul or something. <laughs> How ubiquitous is shamanism in Korea, and is the music associated with shamanism popular at all? I can speak to this only because I follow a Korean shaman on TikTok. Um, so take my opinion with a grain of salt. But Korea is a very Christian country simply okay. because of missionary work. Never heard of like a shamanism cult, but I've heard of like 10 Christian cults yeah. in Seoul. So I feel like it's detached from Pansori simply because shamanism is detached from Korea in a way, simply because of like Western imperialism. So I actually think there's like a new movement and this person that I follow on TikTok to kind of like teach about Korean shamanism, not just within music, but like traditions, that kind of things, to keep it alive because it is like very much dying. I definitely hear the arguments of shamanism versus like Christianity here. There are certain traditions such as a tug of war festival, these like really intricate farming flag ceremonies where different farming villages will come together with their flags and they'll fight the flags, which are really, really cool. And I'm sure that those have music associated with them, but I haven't heard the music outside of those very specific physical time and place festivals or events. I think that shamanism is sort of its own thing. I haven't seen it bleed very much into other areas. So then how would you describe a Kore the Korean identity or, or lack of identity and how is it prevalent in Korean music? Largely when I think of the Korean identity, I think of Korean history. It is all rooted in history. One term that comes up a lot when you're talking about Korean identity is the term Han. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard of the term Han? Yeah, would you mind explaining that a little bit? So it's sort of this idea that to be Korean is to have this innate characteristic of suffering and longing that certain people do identify with, either in Korea or among the diaspora. But if you trace its history, it was actually established during the Japanese occupation, in which sort of the Japanese imperialist forces came up with this characteristic to put onto Koreans. Like, instead of Koreans being able to sort of have this sort of shared feeling of suffering and longing, it was more like the Japanese imperialist forces being like, you were made for suffering. You were made to endure this terrible thing 
thing that we're doing to you, which is a sort of an aspect of history that people take in different ways. Some people are like, right, Han is terrible, it's a reminder of imperialism. But other people are like, well, because of all this history, because of imperialism, because of the Korean War and division, we do have this suffering and it's real. So now we have a word to talk about it. And so we, they take that term and they use it and they consider it a good thing. To tie it into K-pop, which is sort of a recent girl group, and one thing that I think is really interesting about that is that half of the girls in that group are not Korean. So if we talk about the tie-in of Korean identity into K-pop and Korean music, we sort of have to think about how K-pop is such a global thing. Because there are so many like K-pop artists, people in boy groups and girl groups who aren't Korean. There will be people from Japan, China, Taiwan, Australia, the US that is increasing more and more these days. And so it's like, how much can you consider this to be representative of these sort of ideas of traditional Korean identity? K-pop is really representative of more of a South Korean identity, specifically not the Korean identity, but a South Korean identity. Because recently, let's say from 1995, like we said, or after 1997, so <laughs> or after 1997, after the Asian financial crash, Korea had sort of been building itself up after the Korean War, oftentimes taking down the people and democracy in place of infrastructure, so it was both good and bad. Let's say we hit the 2000s and we get Bola and we get Rain and we get Girls' Generation and we get the Wonder Girls and the Wonder Girls were the first band to go to the US. So if you see all of these things and you start to see that the South Korean identity is capitalism, South Korea wants to show everybody that we can be better than Japan, we can be better than the US. Um, and so I think that in that way, K-pop is really, really indicative of current day Korean identity. This work, 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 we gotta be better, gotta be more developed and more technologically advanced, and we got to conquer the world, essentially. Which has good and bad points, <laughs> but I think that in that way, there, it's really, really tied with both a historical and a current Korean identity. Dynamic context! Before we discuss how shamanist music has importance to other genres of Korean music, we should understand what shamanism is and its significance to Korean culture as a whole. Shamanism is an indigenous religion based on the principle of animism, a belief that everything has a complex spirit that has a meaning to people. In shamanism, there are people who are able to connect these looming and ever-present spirits to the physical world, and they use this connection to comprehend current and past events. Additionally, these mediators, known as shamans, are able to use their connection with the spiritual world to promote good fortune and positivity for people. Shamanism is, a pre is present in both South and North Korea, though the North Korean variation has been gaining popularity in recent years. The Northern variation believes that shamans are possessed by spirits during rituals, whereas the Southern variation believes that shamans are purely mediators that are able to communicate between both realms. The piece we listened to in this episode is a genre of shamanist music called pansori, which is similar to a spoken word piece with a small drum to accompany it. The speaker tells a story which typically relates to the darker and more serious topics of shamanism using their voice to create a rich timbre and nearly raspy sound. Additionally, the speaker can change their pitch to provide more emphasis on certain topics, all without falling out of a set tempo. These stories are pulled from a set list of 12 songs that encompass shamanism as a whole. This style of music is niche to Korea and the structure and tempo of the piece fit to an exclusively Korean pattern. 
The religious influences of shamanist culture help differentiate pansori and other shamanist music genres from the influences of other cultures. Additionally, due to the religious connection of shamanist music, many people feel a connection to how inclusive pansori and other subgenres are. People from all backgrounds are able to appreciate the intricacies of shamanist music as it helps define their identity as a Korean, even though Korea has faced so many influences from other cultures for several hundred years. The traditional nature of shamanist music has cemented its importance into Korean culture, bringing its focus on ecstasy and spirituality into a more modern light. Recently, there's been a resurgence of pansori and other subgenres of shamanist music due to scholarly interest as well as awareness in more popular subsets of Korean culture, allowing Koreans to relate to something that is uniquely their own in a time where influences from all across the world can be accessed just from your phone. Now, some of you may be wondering, how could traditional music from over 300 years ago be culturally relevant today? This train of thought actually leads us into the other piece we listen to, Drunk Dazed by Enhypen. Enhypen is a K-pop band formed just last year and has been gaining recent popularity in Korea as well as around the world due to its K-pop style and ecstasy-like sound. The song Drunk Dazed showcases the fusion of shamanism culture and K-pop culture as it utilizes both influences in an intriguing manner. This euphoric sound is curated with electronic elements, vocal samples and inflections, as well as a peppy bass line. The euphoria is also expressed through the music video that accompanies the song, particularly by switching from a scene of a party to a colorful and lively flash mob dance scene during the chorus. The use of many electronic elements to make the gritty sound brings the, electro- brings the underground yet popular feel to Enhypen's take on K-pop. These elements of K-pop are also very relevant in Western culture, particularly American pop and even American electronic music. In terms of K-pop, much of the popularity of industry giants like BTS and Enhypen has come from the commercialized nature of popular music, an aspect that is notoriously American. The formation of Enhypen was made into a competitive television show that has the undertones of American television shows like America's Got Talent, American Idol, and The Voice. This uniquely American approach to popular culture shows the Western influences that have helped curate K-pop into the sensation that it is. In modern Korea, the influences of K-pop and shamanist music seem to intersect quite often in terms of the emotion that they intend to evoke, euphoria. While it would be irresponsible to claim that shamanism is the foundation of K-pop and other Korean, modern Korean music, it is still reasonable to say that shamanist influences helped curate the unique sound of ecstasy in Korean music. K-pop seems to follow in the footsteps of Western popular music by leaving many of the religious elements in the background instead, and instead cherry-picking certain aspects of traditional music to develop a sound that we now claim to be modern. As our regular listeners may know, this typically is when our podcast comes to a close. Psych! We're adding in a new section to the end of each episode that builds on topics introduced in the previous one, based on what we now know after further study. In the rains down in Africa, we discussed the effects of confirmation bias on inclusivity in African musics. Today, we're going to connect that topic to canonization and how it affects ecstatic spaces from a community-focused lens.
I know you guys missed me, what can I say? As Diana just said, I'll be walking through the connections of our two episodes, and I am pretty pumped to share some things we found. So first off, do you know what the Chinese yo-yo is? Well, if you don't, the main piece is shaped like an hourglass, and it balances on a string that is attached to the two handles the performer holds. Based on information presented by the Harvard Chinese Yo-Yo Club, back in the Ming Dynasty in China, the Chinese yo-yo was made of wood, and it also had holes carved in its side. These holes would create various musical pitches when it was spinning. In these times, uh, it was common to see yo-yo performers during festivals or celebrations. Today, the yo-yo is widely manufactured in plastic rather than wood, and it's mainly used as a toy or a way to pass time. The Chinese yo-yo we see today is called the Diablo, and is of European descent. This shift can be seen in the difference of inclusivity and exclusivity. After European countries adopted the yo-yo, its original form, and more importantly, its function changed. As a result, the feeling of ecstasy changed as well. The yo-yo no longer captures a community-wide heightened feeling, but rather we see it acting as a hobby. Therefore, in this case, inclusivity overshadows the pure spirituality tied to the yo-yo. However, exclusivity can also overshadow spirituality and phenomena. The interaction between religion and government has become a more prevalent topic in this decade, and due to recent studies from the Pew Research Center, 22% of countries have an official state religion, 20% have a preferred religion, 53% have no affiliation or lean of religion, and 5% are hostile towards particular religions. And as I read through these statistics, I was thrown back, maybe you are too, by the hostile category because this means that the government is actively enforcing religious conformity and singling out those that do not act in the same religious beliefs. But some of these recognized hostile countries are Vietnam, Vietnam Cuba, and China. And I mean, since we're already on the topic of China before, why not analyze it further, right? So in China, the law explains that citizens have freedom of religious belief, religious belief, but there are limits to the protection of religious activities. So at least to me, it seems like it would be a bit difficult to pursue religion or be religious by not taking any action on religious ideals. You would just kind of believe it and stay in silence. But it doesn't stop there. As you may know, China is a very technologically advanced country and has a unique approach to the internet. But what you may not know is that the Chinese government actually controls what goes in and out of the network. Yaku Wang, a senior Chinese researcher, states that it is a giant mechanism of sensors and heavy surveillance aimed at restricting content, identifying and locating individuals, and accessing personal records with ease. So how in the world are Chinese citizens going to be exposed to different religions if the government is con in control of the internet's content? And even if they were exposed to a new religion, how are they supposed to exercise religion in that hostile environment? And so for those reasons, the Chinese government is a pure example of how exclusivity can limit religion. Lastly, I want to glance at Latin American music and its strides in inclusivity. Since it's been labeled as a genre, Latin American music, or even the word Latin, has been interpreted as Spanish-speaking or of Latin American origin. 
However, with respect to the current month being National Hispanic Heritage Month, and we can see it even with the change of Latin Latina or Latino to more Latin X, it has changed to more of a focus on the culture and the musical elation. The cultural connection and style is what identifies Latin American music, and we recognize that today. So even with the inclusivity of Latin American music, we can recognize the, I guess you could say, proper sound of the genre so that the spirituality or feeling of ecstasy and potentially historic religious ties to certain Latin American musics may be conserved. And so with that, I believe we have reached Alfine of De Capo. No Capo, as young say. <laughs> this otherworldly podcast was brought to you by your resident music nerds, Aiden Schacht, Dianastasia Damick, Diana Kwok, Jack Lewis, and Kathleen Taylor. Today, we listened to some stunning works by the artists Anhypen and Pong Sumi. We'd like to thank our textbook authors, Timothy Raman and Bruno Nettle, our professor, Dr. Program, for bestowing upon us the perspective to make these discussions possible. We can't forget to acknowledge this episode's guest experts, Sarah and Kirsten, for putting up with us first years who ask a million questions. And remember, listeners, no one can have a donut until they tell us a joke or play heart and soul on the piano. Cheers! <laughs>